Let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, raise up your hand. One of our ushers would like to bring one to you, because you're going to want to follow along with the text this morning. Mark, chapter 15. On Sunday mornings, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And today we come to the trial that Jesus faced before Pilate and the prelude before the cross. Let's begin now. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to them, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. We saw in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 that the religious leaders among the Jewish people had a nighttime trial of Jesus, but it was, by its very nature, an illegal trial. So after this uh, trial before the religious council, Jesus was taken first to the Sanhedrin here for another trial, then he was taken to Pontius Pilate for a trial before the Roman officials. So really there were two separate trials before the Sanhedrin, an illegal one by night, and then want to sort of cover up the results of that illegal trial at first morning light. And it says there in verse 1 that they did it immediately in the morning and for good reason. They wanted to do it before the city woke up. And they wanted to do it at the very beginning of Pontius Pilate's working day. You see, a Roman magistrate in that time would begin work at sunup. That's when the court's open session And they wanted to be there early, to catch Pilate early in the day, to get Jesus condemned and on his way to the cross before the city woke up and was aware, really, of what was happening. You see, there would be a crowd outside of Pilate's house that early in the morning, but it was a crowd assembled for a specific purpose, as we'll see a little bit later. So the Jewish officials, after their illegal nighttime trial and then the legal daytime trial, putting a seal upon the work that they had done and condemning Jesus, were told there in verse 1 that they delivered him to Pilate. And the reason why they did that was simple. They understood very well that they did not have the right to execute their own criminals. That right was taken away from the Jewish people in Judea around 7 AD, and they regarded it as a calamity because they felt, well, if you can't punish your own criminals, then you have no right to govern yourself at all. And it told them that they were completely under the oppressive root of Rome. So they delivered Jesus to Pilate. Now, they were confident that when they delivered Jesus to Pilate, that he would execute Jesus. Some of that confidence was misplaced. We're going to find Pilate more conflicted than the Jewish leaders probably expected him to be because they know, they knew, I should say, what we know about Pilate from secular history. Secular history shows us that Pontius Pilate was a cruel, ruthless man, completely insensitive to the moral feelings of others. They thought, surely Pontius Pilate will put this man to death. 
You say, Pilate, we, this man sets himself as a king in opposition to Caesar. We think you should crucify him. Pilate would be the kind of man to, well, I don't mind executing another Jewish up. But there was something working against this expectation. You see, history tells us that Pilate simply didn't like the Jewish people. He was an anti-Semite. And he believed that the Jewish people were stubborn and rebellious and obstinate. And he was constantly suspicious of the Jewish people. Therefore, when the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to him on a silver platter, so to speak, he was immediately suspicious. He says, there's got to be a hidden agenda at work. Since when are they bringing me criminals to execute? Since when are they bringing me kings among themselves? Pilate knew that something was afoot, and it made him immediately suspicious. Therefore, in the course of a Roman trial, and Romans were very methodical in everything that they did, including their legal system. They had a set pattern for a trial. The court would be called to order, and Pilate would come and sit in the magistrate's or the judge's seat. And then the, the person who was sort of the bailiff of the court, he would call together the people who would make the accusations. And they would make the accusations and spell out their case. And then it was time for the accused to come up, and the accused would come up and stand before the magistrate. And then the magistrate had quite a bit of latitude. He could question the people making the accusation. He could question the accused, and he could get the story out. It was his job to figure out what was going on here. And so I'm sure he asked questions of the Jewish priests and the leaders among them. Well, what did he do? This and that. And then he turns to question the accused. That's in verse 2. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, that's what they're accusing you of, mister. This man standing before Pilate, he had already been beaten. He'd already been up all night. He'd already been exhausted by stress. If you remember that battle he had in the Garden of Gethsemane, that battle in prayer. And now he stands before Pilate, exhausted physically and emotionally and spiritually and beaten about at the home of the high priest. He stands before and as Pilate looks upon this man, he goes, you hear what they're saying about you, don't you? You hear that they say that you're setting yourself up as a political king in opposition to Caesar. Now, that isn't really what the charge was against Jesus. If you remember at his trial before the Sanhedrin, the charge was, are you the son of God? Are you God yourself? But they knew they couldn't bring that charge to Pilate. Can you imagine? The Jewish rulers bring the charge to Pilate. This man claims to be God. Well, Pilate would just yawn. Gods? We have hundreds of gods. We have Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and this god and that god. What's one more? We'll build a temple to him if he claims to be a god. That's fine with us. But claim to be a king and you get Rome's attention. Claim to be someone in opposition or in rivalry with Caesar. Well, then you get the the attention of Rome very quickly. That's why they brought that charge to Pilate. And so Pilate questions the accused himself. Are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus' response. It isn't yes. It isn't no. It's in the affirmative, yet there's a reservation to it. It is as you say. Jesus replied to him. You see, that got Pilate's attention. He knew there was something about this man, a dignity, a bearing, a standing, something in his reply, maybe something in the look in his eye. Pilate, as it says there, he marveled. 
Verse 5, but Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. All the accusations flew. The chief priest knew that there was a dignity, that there was a bearing about Jesus, and there was an inherent suspicion in Pilate, so that even after Jesus, so to speak, confessed, saying, it is as you say, oh, still, they they accused him even more and laid the accusations, and Jesus said nothing. He said all he was going to say. It blew Pilate's mind. As the Roman governor of Judea, on many, many occasions... Pilate held the lives of men and women in his hands. He's the judge. Innocent, you go free. Guilty, you die. And it's his decision. Nobody can question it. He has absolute authority. How many men do you think stood before Pilate's tribunal and groveled, begging for their lives? Made up any story, confessed to any crime, just let me live. He saw dignity and a bearing in Jesus that was completely different from any other person who had ever stood before his tribunal, and he marveled. And then he thinks maybe there's a way out. Now you should know that between verses 5 and 6, Pilate did something that Mark, and Mark is into abbreviation. Mark is into condensing things. He he wants to get right to the end of the story, so to speak. He he sort of rushes through things. Between verses 5 and 6, Pilate shipped Jesus off to go see Herod, who was the king of the region of Galilee. Not Herod the Great, who built the great temple and was in the days of Jesus' birth. This was his grandson. And so he said, well, Jesus is from Galilee. Wouldn't you know, the ruler of Galilee is right here. I'll send him off to Herod. He's the ruler of Galilee. But Jesus had nothing to say to Herod because all Herod wanted to see was a trick or a miracle from Jesus. Oh, a miracle worker. Boy, I've wanted to see you do your stuff for quite a while. Can you show me something? Jesus had nothing to say to that man. And he was led back to Pilate. And Pilate said, well, I've got a problem on my hands now. I know this man is innocent. I know it's envy that has made the chief priest deliver him to me. And and I I sent him off to Herod. I tried to dish it off to somebody else. You know, whenever you have your problem, if you can dump it on somebody else, you feel much better about it, don't you? But it didn't work. It came back. It was like a boomerang. It came back to Pilate. But then he thinks, I've got a solution. Look at it here, verse 6. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow insurrectionists. They had committed murder in the insurrection. He says, this is great. You know, I've got this prisoner here, this Barabbas, and there's a couple other guys. They're going to crucify three people today. But I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's let Jesus off and Barabbas and his group, they can go out and be crucified. The problem was this, was the crowd knew that there was this practice of releasing a prisoner every year. Now, nobody in Jerusalem knew that Jesus had been arrested. It happened in the middle of the night. It hadn't gone out through the gossip channels that fill a city like that. And so nobody really knew. The crowd that was assembled at Pilate's house in the courtyard, and there would have been a large courtyard there, holding many hundreds of people. Look at it there, verse uh, 8. It says, Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. There's a multitude out there saying, Pilate, release us a prisoner, release the prisoner, release the prisoner. Now, what prisoner does the multitude mean? They mean Barabbas. They didn't even know Jesus was in custody. The crowd that was before Pilate's house was drummed up there to ask for the release of Barabbas. That's why they gathered there. 
And so there they are. Barabbas was a national hero to them. He was like a patriot. He was, well, isn't it great? So Pilate says, I've got a brilliant idea here. They're asking me to release the prisoner. Well, I'll release the prisoner. I'll release Jesus. Now, Pilate wanted to leave the decision up to the crowd, but he couldn't. Pilate had to decide about Jesus. Do you remember in the Gospel of John, that dramatic place where Pilate washed his hands in front of the crowd and in front of the chief rulers of the Jewish people? And by washing his hands, he was saying, I have nothing to do with this. This is your problem. This is your issue. But he couldn't wash his hands. You know, in the great Apostles' Creed, that foundational statement that Christians have believed in and agreed upon for centuries. We say in that great creed that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Friends, doesn't that teach us something? Pilate had to decide about Jesus. He had to. And you have to decide, and I have to decide. There's no neutral ground when it comes to who Jesus is or what he's done in our life. You have to decide. Your life will be lived under some mastering principle. So you have to decide, but the crowd had to decide as well. Pilate says, I'll release to you the prisoner. Here's the prisoner, Jesus. Look at the reaction of the crowd. Verse 9, but Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Here he is. Jesus, take him. Verse 10, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, what do you want me to do with him who's called the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. You see, now the, the crowd is developing its own momentum, its own force, just like crowds, just like mobs do. And they began to demand Demand that Barabbas be released. Now, this wasn't a hard thing to convince the crowd of. Number one, that's why they gathered there. Number two, you had the chief priests and their their minions working their way through the crowd. Barabbas, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. And that crowd dynamic is going. And number three, who is it suggesting to them that they take Jesus? It's Pontius Pilate, the Roman magistrate. Get this in your mind. Pontius Pilate, the Roman magistrate, up in the judgment seat, And a crowd of Jewish partisans who hate the occupying Romans down below. If the Roman magistrate says white, what is the crowd going to say? Black. If he says black, what is the crowd going to say? White. If he says yes, what's the crowd going to say? No. Anything they can do to oppose the Roman magistrate, they're going to do. You almost wish that Pilate would have used reverse psychology. And said, I demand that that I release Barabbas to you. And then maybe the crowd was, no, no, we want Jesus. (laughs) But the situation wouldn't have that, would it? You see, as much as anything, just because Pilate requested that they receive Jesus as the released prisoner, they demanded Barabbas. And friends, I want you to see that the crowd chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Isn't that a sobering point? You see, when you reject Jesus, you choose something else. As I said before, your life will be lived under a mastering principle, either under the lordship of Jesus Christ or the lordship of something else. And when you reject Jesus, you don't choose anything better. Are you more worthy to live for than Jesus? 
Is your job really more worthy to live for than Jesus? Even the good things in your life, even your family, even good works that you may do, it's not more worthy to live for than Jesus himself. And this crowd unwisely rejected Jesus and they chose Barabbas instead. And so Pilate, hoping that the crowd would set him free, but they didn't. Instead, they cried out all the more. If you notice here, verse 13, so they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? And they cried out more exceedingly, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. We're sort of interested in Barabbas, aren't we? What an engaging character. Perhaps he was being held in the barracks right there near the the, the palace where Pilate was staying, where that crowd was gathered outside. Perhaps they, they, they had Jesus standing there, and there's Jesus standing before the crowd, hearing the shouts of the people, crucify him, crucify him. Those blessed ears who just a week earlier had heard the cries of Hosanna. Save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now here's crucify from a multitude. And Barabbas is there and he's released. Now, Barabbas was a guilty man. There's no question about the guilt of Barabbas. He's not a man who is railroaded by false justice. He's not a man who was convicted under false premise. He was guilty. He deserved to die. And I imagine, as I picture it in my mind, I imagine Barabbas being released to the crowd, and the crowd cheers because it has its political hero. It has the man that they preferred over Jesus. And I can imagine the look on Barabbas' face. You know the smirk that comes over the face of a guilty man who knows he's gotten away with it. That's the look on Barabbas' face. At least in my mind, as I picture it, Barabbas comes out and he has that that smirk on his face and he doesn't even look at Jesus. What does he care about Jesus? Jesus is nothing to him. He's free. Friends, if there's ever a man who has ever walked the face of the earth who should be able to say, Jesus died for me, it's Barabbas. Three crosses were planned for that day, and the third cross was not intended for Jesus. The third cross was intended for Barabbas. And there he would stand, there he would hang on that cross as a guilty sinner. But what you have in the case of Jesus, you have Jesus the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. The innocent in the place of the guilty. Well, friends, that's us, isn't it? Aren't we Barabbas? Aren't you Barabbas? And I'm Barabbas. We're the guilty, and Jesus died in our place. The one who was completely innocent, who didn't deserve to die at all, he died in the place of the one who was completely guilty. It's Jesus for Barabbas. It's Jesus for you. It's Jesus for me. Well, they wouldn't receive Jesus. Instead, they took Barabbas. And so verse 15, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. You know, when Jesus was scourged, it was a terrible thing. It means that they would have taken the clothing off of his back, and if they did it according to the custom of of the, the day, 
They would have tied his hands around a post that stood right there in the courtyard where the tribunal was held. And as they tied his hand around the post, his back would have been stretched and and just opened and exposed. And then the Roman centurion or one of the soldiers would have gotten out a whip. And it was a whip with a leather handle and, and, and many, maybe a dozen, maybe 15 leather cords on it. The leather cords would have been not terribly long, anywhere from a foot to two feet long. At the end of each one of the leather strips would have been tied a piece of glass or bone or, or metal. And the soldier would take and he would strike the victim at the top of the back. And then he would rake the whip down the length of the man's back. From historical accounts back in the days of Jesus, we know that men died being scourged. We know that men were left with their internal organs exposed after a scourging. We know that men were left with their bones literally laid bare after a scourging. And so Jesus endured this. Jesus suffered this scourging. And then if you look at it next, it says that after he scourged him, he led him out to be crucified. Again, the Romans were very methodical, and so they had a formula. They had a method for everything. And so Pilate would have pronounced the sentence. I could give you the Latin phrase, but in in English it just says, you shall mount the cross. That's what Pilate would have said to Jesus, the official sentence, and it would have been carried out immediately, that the soldiers would have gotten him together and prepared to take him to execution. It means they need to get together the team of people who's going to lead him to the cross. They need to get together the cross beam. They need to make those arrangements. But hey, while they're making those arrangements, why not have some fun? You know, Passover time was a stressful time for a Roman soldier. Jerusalem was flooded with pilgrims coming from all over the world and pilgrims who hated Rome and had a high expectation of a Messiah who would come and deliver them. It was stressful to be a Roman soldier in Jerusalem at Passover time. And so any little thing you could take to relieve the stress, you welcomed it. So look at how they entertained themselves. Verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Kings of that day would often wear a purple robe and a gilded wreath of leaves. Not properly a crown, just sort of a wreath of leaves on their head. But they substituted that. Instead of a a glorious purple robe like a king would wear, they they took a rag, an old piece of fabric, maybe from a soldier's cloak, or maybe from an old thing that Pilate wore. It was probably just laying around, and they picked it. And it wasn't new fabric. It wasn't a deep purple. It was probably faded and torn. And it only had the memory of a nice purple garment, but it suggested it. And they hung it around Jesus' soldiers. Well, there's your purple robe. You're a king. And then instead of the, 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 the wreath of leaves that, that would be gilded, that they would put upon the head of a king or an emperor, they put a crown of thorns. Well, here's your crown. We'll grind it into your head. And oh, there's jewels in your crown. Look at the jewels. But instead of precious rubies, it's just the redness of drops of blood that cling to the crown of thorns as it's pressed upon our Lord's brow. And then, if it gets even worse, verse 18 They began to salute him, hail, 
king of the Jews. You know, Romans would salute Caesar with the words, Hail Caesar! And so they take this, they twist it. You know, just like in our state, we'd say, well, hail to the chief, or, or greetings, Mr. President. This is their mock. Greetings, Mr. King. Hail to the king of the Jews. And they sing it, and they chant it in the mocking way, uh, making fun of the way that they would do it legitimately towards Caesar. And then it says they struck him. Verse 19, they struck him on the head with a reed. Friends, it's not like a straw. It's a stick. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that they put that reed in his hand as it was a royal scepter. Here's your royal scepter. We'll give you a stick. Oh, my, you're quite the king, aren't you? Clothed in your purple with your wonderful crown, and there's your scepter. My, what a ruler you are. But Mark tells us that they must have grabbed that stick from his hand. Well, let me take that scepter of yours, Mr. King, and they hit him over the head with it. Even worse, look at it there. They spat on him. And then they bowed the knee and worshipped him. Oh, you're the king. We, we honor you, king, just like they would a legitimate king. Now they, they, they do it in, in cruel irony. And they spat on him. Actually, the, the, the original language there tells us that, that they kept spitting on him. You know, friends, when you read that, doesn't it make you want to worship Jesus? Doesn't it raise a little bit of fiery indignation in you? And say, Lord, if this is how you were treated by cruel men when you walked this earth, then you will hear praise from me. You will be honored by me. I will not put myself in the company of those who looked upon this with indifference. You see, for every soldier who spat on Jesus or ground that crown of thorns in his head or dressed him with the mocking purple, for every soldier who did that, there was an onlooker in the multitude who smiled and thought, oh, isn't this wonderful? Friends, we won't do either. We won't mock the king, nor will we smile at those who do it. We'll stand for Jesus Christ. And if our Lord would endure such scorn, we realize that we should expect to endure such scorn at times as well. Friends, we endeavor to be followers of Jesus Christ, not merely admirers of Jesus. We don't want to form the Jesus Admiration Society, where we look at him from afar and, well, what wonderful things he did. No, we want to be followers of his. And I suppose that if he was mocked and if he was scorned, then there will be times when we must be also and we'll bear it as we should as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't expect any better treatment than our Lord received, do we? And so when the world tries to laugh at us for Christians, then we'll laugh at their laughs. We realize that we were just followers of Jesus. So it says at the end, of verse 20, that they led him out to crucify him. You know, after the scourging, the man who was to be crucified was, was forced to march in sort of a mock parade. A Roman centurion would go in the front, and there would be soldiers behind, and in between would be the victim, the man who would be forced to carry the cross. Now, a, a cross in that day would weigh up to 300 pounds, and you say, well, no wonder Jesus couldn't carry it. No, no, no. You wouldn't carry the entire cross to the place of execution. They kept the vertical uprights at the place of execution. Those remain there. By the way, isn't it remarkable to think that Jesus walking around in the city of Jerusalem and on looking over the walls and walking into the city because this would be outside the city walls. He probably saw the upright that he would be crucified on. He probably saw it many times because it would have stayed in the ground there. 
But you see, what the prisoner carried was the horizontal beam. And that could weigh 75, 100 pounds. Sometimes they would tie his hands around it and force him to carry it through the streets. And then they would hang around his neck a sign that would describe maybe the name of the prisoner or the crime that he had committed. And that sign ended up on top of the cross so that everybody knew what he did. And then you think, well, they, they take the most direct route to the cross, right? They go from the place where the guy was condemned over to the cross. No, no, no. They, they wind it on a serpentine trail through the different streets and back alleys, and they made a very leisurely pace. It wasn't because they didn't have good maps or got lost or didn't have a GPS or anything like that. It's because for the Romans, crucifixion, it, it wasn't just a way to execute people. When the Romans just wanted to execute people, they beheaded them. Quick, easy, painless, put the man's head down, get a sword, bam, the head's off, he's dead. No, a crucifixion was an event, and it was public relations. This was the PR department at Rome, hard at work, and the message of a a crucifixion was, don't mess with Rome. You mess with us, this is what happens to you. This is what we do to people who get in our face. And so they wanted the PR message to get out, right? That's just good public relations. So they wound through the streets, and as they made their way through the streets, Jesus fell under the cross. Let's take a look at the last verse we're going to consider here this morning. Verse 21. That they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now again, it was the custom of the Romans to make the condemned criminal bear the cross. But in this case, Jesus was simply too weak to carry it. He said, why does they don't make him? And if he dies on the way there, then he dies. No, no, that's not the way the Romans like to do things. It would be a letdown to, to not follow through with the crucifixion. You wanted the guy at least barely alive when you put him on the cross. So he needed help. Well, what do you do? You're the Roman centurion. You got a problem. The guy can't carry the cross anymore. Uh, who's going to carry it? One of your soldiers? What, are you crazy? A Roman soldier carry a cross? That's nuts. What are you going to do? You're going to get one of the citizens of Jerusalem, one of the onlookers there, one of the city people? Are you kidding? They would take it as such an offense, you might start a riot. I mean, it would be such an offensive slap in the face to somebody who lived there. So who do you get? You can't get a soldier. You can't get a citizen around there. You pick a stranger. Well, look, here's a man coming right here. He's coming from the country. He's walking. And we can tell by the way he's dressed. We can tell by the way he walks. Maybe because he was from Cyrene, which is in North Africa, maybe his skin was very dark. We can tell that this man's a stranger. You, we compel you to carry the cross. They had a whole form for it. The Roman centurion would take out his sword and he would touch the flat edge of the sword to the person's shoulder and he would say, I impress you in the name of Rome, you have to serve. There was no option to it. The sword had been placed on his shoulder. You think Simon from Cyrene, do you think he enjoyed this? Do you think he said, oh, here's my opportunity to help somebody. I haven't done a good turn all day. It's early in the morning. I'm just walking in from the country. No, he probably bitterly resented it. And he probably looked at Jesus and said, I have to help this piece of human garbage, this executed criminal. Who knows how many people this man has murdered? Who knows how many people he has violated and hurt? And I have to carry his cross? But you wonder, you can't help but think that Jesus and Simon made some eye contact. We have at least some reason to believe that Simon came to faith. Did you notice there where it says in verse 21, the father of Alexander and Rufus? 
it gives a suggestion that the people who originally read Mark's gospel knew who these people were, which means they were probably Christians, which means that Simon had a remarkable testimony. Oh, he probably hated it at the time, but later on he would have looked at it the most wonderful thing that he ever did. Wouldn't you have loved to go back in time and to be the person to bear Jesus' cross? But yet look at it, and verse 21 tells us that they compelled him to do it. There wasn't a choice about it. You know, sometimes the things that we are compelled to do turn out to be the biggest blessings in our life. You hate it at the moment, don't you? But later you see that it was such a wonderful blessing. Friends, I I, I think we must simply identify ourselves so closely with Jesus that we'll carry his cross. And this is what Simon did. Did you catch his name? Simon. Touch of irony there, right? The way God arranges things. There was another Simon who said that he would never leave the Lord, that he would be with him all the way. There was another Simon who, by all rights, should have been the one standing by Jesus. No, Jesus, I'll carry your cross. It's bad enough that you must be crucified. Let me carry your cross. But that Simon denied Christ three times and turned tail and ran. And God says, I've got another Simon. I've got another one to replace him. I I, I bet when, when Peter heard the story later, and when he heard the name of the man, It stung deeply. So which Simon is your life more like now? The one who denied or the one who stood beside Jesus and carried his cross? You know, friends, I think the charge to us is very simply, instead of denying Jesus like Simon Peter, we need to do what Simon the Cyrene did, and we need to tell others what Jesus did and how they can benefit from it. Don't you want to do that? I mean, he went to the cross to die as a substitute for them. So tell others. You can give other people the very gift of your own courageous Christian walk, just like Simon did, even if you feel compelled to do it. See, friends, it's very, very important that we come before God right now and say, Lord, make me like Simon the Cyrenian. I don't want to be like the denying Simon. I want to be like the faithful Simon. And carry this cross for your sake, Lord. Because he died for you, the innocent in place of the guilty. Many of us spend our time trying to deny our guilt before God, but instead just acknowledge it. Because he died for the guilty. He didn't die for the nice. He didn't die for the good. He died for the Barabbas, for the guilty. Let's pray right now and ask the Lord to work this deeply in our hearts. Father, I pray that right now as I pray that you'd call people to a place of decision. I, I wonder, Lord, if there aren't people here who have come this morning with such prepared hearts, they're ready to embrace Jesus Christ. And what they've heard this morning just adds to it. And now they're ready, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help everyone in this room to make a decision for Jesus. We don't want to be like the crowd and choose a Barabbas instead of Jesus. No, we choose you, Jesus. And in the same way, Lord God, we stand beside our Savior and we receive the challenge that Jesus said, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. We'll take up the cross, Lord. We'll follow after you. Make us more courageous than we have ever been on your behalf. 
Fill us with your spirit this morning. And I pray now as we worship that you would receive the glory and the honor that would contrast so brightly with the mocking and the shame that you received on that day. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we praise you this morning. Receive our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.